Barlow, who's sort of a London elite who takes an expedition into the heart of Africa, into the jungle, and meets there a man named Joseph Kurtz. And Kurtz is an ivory trader who is English as well, but has lived for some time in the jungle with the indigenous tribes there in Africa and has become very familiar with that way of life. And the whole point of the book is that Marlowe represents the civilized Western world and Kurtz represents the uncivilized world of African tribalism. And the story, if you remember it, is really pretty dark. I'm not going to give it all away because I want you to read it. And I also don't want to depress you at the very beginning of the sermon. So I'll just summarize by saying that these two men represent these two parts of the world that we all think are really different, but in many ways are really the exact same. And in a sense, the point of the heart of darkness is that civilization is really just an illusion. Um, It's a superficial facade Because within every single one of us and within every single culture, there exists a heart of darkness. A heart of darkness lurks inside all of us. And the power and poignancy of that book is that it makes that observation in a way that's somewhat shocking and unexpected. But it makes an observation about reality that I think if any of us are being honest, we can all see. Something is really, really wrong with our world. And something is really, really wrong with each one of us as well. No matter your faith commitment, no matter if you call yourself a Christian or if you know you're not a Christian or if you're unsure, I think that that proposition, that something's wrong with the world and something's wrong with us, is something that we can all agree on at the outset. Now, one of the things I find most interesting and compelling about the Christian faith is that its story told in the Bible provides an answer for what is wrong with our world. And for what is wrong with us? And we see the answer to that question rooted here in Genesis chapter 3, which we finish up this morning. So this sermon is in many ways a continuation of last week's sermon. But if you missed last week, that's okay. I think you'll still be able to follow along. And preaching on Genesis 3 is really overwhelming because really the rest of the Bible is in conversation with this chapter. Um, This chapter gets to the heart of darkness in our world, and in our lives. This chapter explains why there are such things as sickness and sorrow and pain and death. And yet, as Scripture constantly tells us, even here at the beginning, the story doesn't end with the heart of darkness, with the viral strain of sin that has infected all of us. Rather, even in Genesis 3, we see glimpses of the light and the hope of God's grace in the gospel. So what I want to do with you this morning is break these verses into three parts. Genesis 3, 14 through 24. Let's look at it in three sections, and here they are. We're going to see the curse, the cherubim, the child. All C's. I was very proud of that. My Southern Baptist roots are coming out. The curse, the cherubim, the child. Let's look at the curse first. You see that in verses 14 through 19. Now, last time, the first half of Genesis 3 tells us that Adam and Eve at the instigation and temptation of the evil one, Satan, coming in the form of a serpent, they, they sin against God. They break the command that he gave them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we saw last week that sin in its essence is a transfer of allegiance from the kingdom of God to the kingdom of self. Sin is our attempt, which will always be futile, to take the throne of God for ourselves. 
And then verses 14 through 19 present for us God's initial judgment against sin, against rebellion. And that's pictured here in three curses that God pronounces upon the serpent, upon the woman, and upon the man. And it's evident that these curses aren't just to them as individuals, but they are to Adam and Eve as representatives of the entire human race. That is to say, these curses that are talked about here affect each one of us this morning very, very significantly. And just a word real quick on curses. God isn't here like putting a hex on Adam and Eve. He isn't going like Professor Snape on Adam and Eve here. We need to understand the curse rather in the broader context of what we've seen so far in Genesis. Remember, God established a covenant with Adam and Eve. He said, if you do this, you will live. If you do this, you will die. And they've done what God commanded them not to do. And the sentence of death is to be given to them. And so in that context, Adam and Eve and all of their children, all of us, are now seen by God as covenant breakers. And so these curses are the consequences of disrupted fellowship with the God of life and light. And because of that, they're severe and they're also deserved. The transfer of allegiance from God to self has massive effects. So let's look at these curses. First, verses 14 and 15 tell us that the devil is cursed. God says that of all the beasts of the field, the serpent is the most cursed. That should go without saying. Any of you people that like snakes, the Bible here tells you you should not like snakes. It's just, that's not, that's my personal opinion, but it's also in the Bible. Okay, so the devil is cursed. Snakes are cursed. They will crawl on their belly. They will eat dust all the days of his life. Verse 14. Now, the irony here is that the one who tempted Eve to do what? Eats. The one who tempted Eve to eat is now going to eat. He's going to eat dust. The most crafty, we saw in verse 1, of all the animals will now be the loneliness, loneliest and in some ways the oddest of all the animals. God says that Satan, here's the idea, will be humbled and subjugated and ultimately that Satan will be crushed. So to eat dust isn't to be taken literally. Rather, it's a symbol of the devil's ultimate demise. And verse 15 tells us that in fact, the head of the serpent is going to be bruised by the offspring of Eve. We'll talk more about that later. So the curse on the devil is a curse of humiliation and a curse of ultimate destruction. Second, we see in verse 16, the woman is cursed and there's two parts to her curse. We read first, she will have multiplied pain in childbearing. Now, it's important for you to get that the curses against Adam and Eve have to do with their primary functioning in the world. They have to do with the things that are most important in the way that we are made and the way that God has designed us. So the curse upon Eve is that she will now have real physical pain in bearing children. Now, of course, that is to be taken literally. It's going to hurt to have babies, but it can be understood more expansively as well. You could extend this to all the anxiety that you women feel before pregnancy, during pregnancy, and also in the art of parenting, okay? So she will have multiplied pain in childbearing. And then secondly, she will have pain in marriage. Look at verse 16. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now that is a controversial verse, but what it means is really pretty simple. 
It means that the equal fellowship and partnership of man and woman that we studied a couple of weeks ago in marriage is greatly disrupted by the fall. It's greatly disrupted by sin. It means that now, as a result of sin, there will be a desire to break the relationship of equality and friendship and turn it into a relationship of domination and servitude. The woman will want to get rid of the man's authority and the man will want to be a tyrant over the woman. So far from being a reign of co-equals over the rest of God's world, the relationship of marriage now becomes in many ways a fierce dispute with each party trying to rule the other. So the two that once reigned as one now attempt to rule each other in ways that are harmful and hopeless. So the place where the place where the brokenness caused by sin affects us the most. You see this already is in our closest relationships. It's in our closest companions, our children and our spouses. Think about that. I mean, isn't that the cause of so much of our pain and hurt? Your husband doesn't like his job. So he comes home and inevitably his anger and frustration boils over onto you and the children. And you're hurt. Your wife doesn't have a good sense, you don't think, of the pressures that you feel and the responsibilities that you carry. And so you feel unsupported and disrespected. You're hurt. You have waited and prayed for children, and instead you've experienced the grief of miscarriage. You're hurt. You're raising children, and you see in them so many of your own weaknesses (laughs) and so many of your own frailties that it makes you worry for the future, right? You're hurt. You look at the past, you look at family pictures hanging on your wall or sitting on your counter where everyone is smiling. And if you're honest at times, you think to yourself, this is all a big lie because you're hurt. All of that, all of that is a part of the curse that sin has brought into our lives. The serpent is cursed. Eve and all women are cursed. And then Adam and all men are cursed. We see the man cursed in verses 17 through 19. And again, remember, the curse refers to the primary function that God initially gave to the man. God says that his work, his work will be cursed. Now, it's important for you to understand that work itself is not a product of the fall, although some of us wish it was at times. Work itself is not a product of the fall. God told Adam before sin to tend and care for the garden. But toilsome and fruitless work is a product of the fall. The curse means that there will now be futility to man's life and women's lives that work, obviously, that did not exist before sin. That's the idea behind verse 19, which is basically saying, hey, here's what's going to happen. You're going to work and work and work really hard, and then you're going to die. That's verse 19. Uh, The author of Ecclesiastes talks about this a lot. That book was written much later than Genesis And uh, he makes the same point in his wise reflections on life. Listen to this. Here's what Ecclesiastes says. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. What has a man from all the toiling and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. 
Isn't it interesting? And don't we find in our own lives that this is true? The two great tasks in life, love and work, are just excruciatingly hard. Love hurts. I think someone's sung about that before. Love hurts. Work hurts. And this story explains why. We've seen that love is hard. We see here that work is hard. Here's the point. You should be you should expect, excuse me, you should expect to be frustrated by your work, even if you're in the right job. Even if you feel like God put me on the earth to do what I am doing right now, you're still going to experience futility and frustration. Even highly successful people in their respective vocations feel frustration. One of my favorite bands right now is a band called the War on Drugs. If you like, like good rock music, they are an amazing band. And, um, I was reading this interview with their lead singer, a guy named Adam Grandisil, this week in an interview he did with The Guardian. And uh, he's talking about uh, right after their album that kind of made them a pretty famous band came out. Uh, they, before that album came out, they would like go on tour and they would be in London and they would play at this little place with about this many people there in the room, you know, pretty small venues. But after this album came out, they blew up. And before they know it, they were playing at these huge venues in London and selling out multiple shows. They had had a ton of success. And um, Grandisil in this interview talks about how the success actually didn't make him feel the way he thought it would make him feel. Listen to what he says. Once it was our show that exploded, I started having a whole new set of anxieties. I was overcome by fear. My anxiety used to take the form of panic attacks. Now it manifests itself in anger, and I don't know what's next, he says. Then he says, so you have to be on top of that. You think, oh, I'm fine. I'm not having panic attacks. But then you're lashing out at everyone in anger. Some of you might have seen as another example, Jim Carrey, the comedian, recently was quoted as saying, I wish that everyone in the world could experience getting rich and fabulously wealthy so that they can see how empty it really is. The point is that even when we're doing what God called us to do, there's going to be a frustration to our work. There's going to be a frustration in our family. Love and work are affected by the curse. So the curse that sin brings is vast, right? It's vast in scope. It's deep and substantial in its impact. But the most important consequence of sin is what we read about in the very kind of weird and mysterious ending of this chapter. Verses 22 through 24, we see the cherubim, okay? What's going on in verse 22? I mean, to be honest, this verse has mystified me for years. And I think I've got a bit of a handle on it now. I'm going to do the best I can. Um... What are we to make of what God says here? God says, and this is like a half sentence. The sentence just cuts off. He says, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever, dot, dot, dot. Sentence ends and then God acts. So what's going on here? Why does God bar man from Eden and in case he eats from the tree of life? Think about it in this way. That's exactly what the devil said would happen. The devil said, if you eat of it, you will become like God. And then at the very end of the chapter, God says, they've become like us. So was the devil right? Well, yes. In one sense, he was right. And here's where the great subtlety of the devil comes into play. Okay? His lie was and always is a perverse corruption of the truth. 
So man breaking the covenant, breaking God's law, did give him and did give her a certain level of independence. While he was sinless, he received everything from God's hand. But now man wants to go it alone. He, in a sense, achieves his own autonomy. He achieves his dependence. But the perversion of the truth is found in the devil's words, and it soon becomes clear because man, man denying dependence upon God only leads to one place. Man denying dependence upon God only leads to death. Because we can't really bear the weight of independence. That's not how we were made. Autonomy is an illusion. It's a pitiful aping of God. I love what the Genesis commentator writes, Victor Hamilton. I think the quote is up there for you. Listen to this. The serpent held out to the couple the prospect that being like God would bring with it unlimited privileges, unheard of acquisitions and gifts. Alas, rather than experiencing bliss, they encounter misery. Rather than sitting on a throne, they are expelled from the garden. The couple not only fail to gain something they do not presently have, the irony is that they lose what they currently possess, unsullied fellowship with God. They found nothing and lost everything. We see that man loses everything in that they are exiled, cast out from the garden temple, the dwelling place of God. Man goes from the garden to the wilderness, and there's a cherubim, an angel guard, with a flaming sword barring our access to God and to life. Now, those two things are connected. Exile from God's presence and death are connected. Being in God's presence and life are connected. They're linked. To be away from God is to be away from life. To be with God is to have life. And so the greatest consequence of sin is summarized here and by Paul commenting on this in Romans 6, where he says the wages of sin is death. Sin, our transfer of allegiance from God to self, brings death. It brings immediate spiritual death. Immediate spiritual death to Adam and Eve, which is why they're exiled from God's presence, which is why they're kicked out of the garden. And it brings eventual physical death to Adam and Eve, which is why God says in verse 19, you are made from dust and guess what? You're going back to dust. Your body's going to decompose and no one's going to remember that you ever existed. Sin causes death. Now listen, listen, I want you to remember here that Adam and Eve's story is all of our stories. So listen to the truth. Here's what Genesis 3 tells us. Because of sin, you and I, all of us, are dead. We're dead to God right now. And because of sin, all of us one day will physically die. Our lives will end. And because of sin, without someone to rescue you, you will live forever separated from God in what scripture elsewhere calls eternal death. Far, far, far from the giver of life, forever banished from his presence, forever exiled. Why so glum, Luke? I mean, come on. Well, here's why. You're in peril. You're in danger as a rebel. 
as a covenant breaker, as a sinner. And you need to hear your true condition, just like I need to hear my true condition. Because until we understand what state we really are in, we won't look for help outside of ourselves. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce was pastor of 10th Church in Philadelphia for a number of years, and he tells a story that I liked. I want to tell it to you now. He talks about a man who was dressed up in a tuxedo and uh, was walking through a city on his way to a party. And as he was walking along, a car came by and ran through a mud puddle and drenched the man's clothes. And it was dark outside, so at first the man thought the damage might be slight. And so he could tell he was wet, but since it didn't look too bad, he would just keep on walking and go to the party, he thought. And ahead of him was a streetlight. And when he got about halfway toward the streetlight, he looked down at his clothes again, and he realized, oh my goodness, the damage is much greater than I thought it was. And he was worried, but he thought he would still go on. And so at last he came and he stood directly underneath the streetlight. And now he saw the damage with the full illumination of the light upon it. And he said, my goodness, it's much worse than I thought. I'm going to have to go home and change my clothes. But then he sort of wistfully said to himself, but I don't have any clean clothes. And that's the point of Genesis 3. None of us have clean clothes. We're all stained. We're all much dirtier than we initially think, and only coming under the light will reveal that. We see the curse very vividly here. We see the cherubim barring the way to Eden. We see that sin brings death. This is a chapter about the wages of sin. It's about life east of Eden. But it's also a chapter where we, where we see the first glimmer of the dawn. We see the first sign of God's forgiving grace to rebels like you and I. We see it even in Genesis chapter 3, a very dark chapter. Where do we see it? Well, we see that in the middle of God's judgment, he makes a promise. We already looked at it briefly, but I want to go back to it. The promise was really vague and opaque at first, but really the rest of the Bible is about the fulfillment of this promise. Look in verse 15. The Lord God says to the serpent, I will put enmity, hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring, singular, and her offspring, singular. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now that is the first gospel. That is the first promise in the Bible from God that he is going to triumph over the evil one. He's going to crush the evil one. And he's going to do this by the offspring or the seed or the child, the child of Eve, crushing the head of the serpent. Romans chapter 16 tells us that the God of peace will one day crush Satan underneath his feet. Okay, so this is a reference, a very early one, the earliest one to Jesus. Jesus is the final seed or child of Eve. He's the second and the last Adam. So even in Genesis 3, God promises that he will restore this world from the effects of the curse. He promises that he will forgive sinful rebels by coming himself to defeat the evil one and to defeat our own sin. But look at the prophecy. Even here we read that God doesn't do this without a cost. Notice that in the crushing of the serpent's head, the heel of the child is bruised. 
And we know now, with the whole story of the Bible told, that in order for the child, for Jesus, to win, he had to die. He had to bear, to take the wages of sin. Jesus had to take the shame of sin. He was crucified naked and ashamed. Jesus had to be exiled from the presence of God at the cross. God turned his back on his own son and didn't answer when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, the reason that God forsook Jesus is because it's the only way God could forgive us. That was the only way that we can be pardoned of our sin. The only way, because we can never pay our own debt. It was the only way we can have our shame removed because we can never clothe ourselves. It's the only way we can come back home to the Father because we're lost wanderers out on our own. Jesus takes what we deserve and we get what he deserves. He takes our sin and we get his victory. Genesis 3.15, in a chapter of darkness, we see a glimmer of light. We see a glimmer of hope. You might be thinking, that's some weird stuff that you Christians just impose on this very, very old myth that uh, I'm not buying. Okay. I want you to see that Adam bought it. Adam believed it. And I'll show you that he believed it. There's proof that he believed it. Did Adam understand this? Yes. Did Eve understand the promise? Yes. Adam and Eve responded to the promise in the exact same way that God is calling you to respond to the promise right now. They promised by trusting that God will keep his promise. They responded by faith. We see that in verse 21. Or excuse me, verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve. Now, some of your Bibles likely have a footnote there because Eve sounds like the Hebrew word for life or life giver. So Adam named Eve life. Now, why would Adam do that? He's named all the animals and now he names his wife life. Well, he names her life in a chapter that's all about death. Did you catch that? They've just been sentenced. I mean, God just said to dust, you will return. And so Adam says, I'm going to name you life. Why? Why does he do that? Because he believes in the promise of God. He believes that what God has said to him is true. And really, it's the same for us now. This story is our story. In a chapter about the entrance of death, we see here that God promises to make all of our names life. Again, he promises that through Jesus. Jesus gave his life that we might have life. John Steinbeck wrote, uh, If a story is not about the hearer, he will not listen. A great lasting story is about everyone. Is about everyone, or it will not last. Christianity argues that the story of the Bible, the story of the fall and the promised child, is really about you. It's your story. Can you see yourself in it? Like Adam and like Eve, you want God's throne for yourself. Like Adam and like Eve, because of that inner desire, you bear the weight of the curse of sin. You're going to die one day. You have futility in your work. You have frustrations in your marriage and with your 
children. You experience the thistles and thorns of our life everywhere. And like Adam and Eve, you today have heard a promise from God. Even though you, like Adam and Eve, have broken the covenant, God says, I have sent my son to take the punishment for you. Will you believe that? Will you trust me in that? And so really, Genesis 3 is asking of you two things. It's asking that you see the gravity of your own sin. It's asking that, like that man who came under the streetlight, you look down and really consider your state. Consider your selfishness and consider how wrapped up you are in all manner of lies and deceit and greed and shame. And consider that before God, you're guilty. And then consider that God sees that about you and continues to make you a promise. He says, I've sent Jesus to wash you clean completely, to give you new clothes. They're free. All you have to do is trust. That's what the scripture is asking of you. The Bible reads you more than you read the Bible. Can you see yourself as a sinner? Can you see yourself in need of forgiveness? And can you see Jesus, the son, the child, the last Adam, offering himself for you? Where sin was found, grace was found all the more. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for uh, your grace to us.